Well, amen. Thank you. Good song. In your Bible today, the book of John, chapter 3, if you will, please. John, chapter 3. And I'm having you turn there, but honestly, you probably can quote the text with me, the same one as last week as I continue with my series on For the Love of God. For the Love of God. And I want to focus again on that great, great passage of Scripture, John 3.16. Well, as our custom is, won't you stand with me as we read God's Word? And you may not read it, or you may not need to read it, but let's say it or read it together right now. John 3.16, say it with me if you will. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. One more time, like a great choir, that was good, okay? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable unto you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit as I seek to convey to the people here today how much you love them and how much you love the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. As I watched you, almost everybody in here was saying that verse by memory. Very few people were looking down at your Bible because we've heard that verse all of our life. It may have been one of the first verses we ever memorized if we grew up in Sunday school and in church. And amen, so be it. Because that verse is the gospel in miniature. So said Martin Luther, the great theologian. The gospel in miniature. If you wanted to take all four of the gospels the story of Jesus, and roll it up into one verse. There it is in just a few words. God so loved the world. But there's a problem with that verse, a big problem. Do I have your attention? Are you asking what in the world could be the problem with John 3.16? Here's the problem. Over-familiarity with this verse has led many of us to take it for granted. And it doesn't thrill us anymore. We've seen the sign behind the home plate at ball games and on the sidelines of football games. and We've seen Tebow put it under his helmet and his eye black, and we've said it in Sunday school, and we've heard preachers preach on it. And this morning, you've already heard it sung twice, the love of God. And with so many people, I'm afraid. The pastor's preaching on the love of God. Oh, that'll be interesting. We're not excited that God loved us like we ought to be. Let me tell you something perhaps you haven't thought about. Were it not for the love of God, you would not have a Bible. You see, when we love someone, we want to communicate with them. When a couple comes in and says, he doesn't communicate anymore, she doesn't communicate anymore, there's trouble in Denmark. Trouble in the camp then, isn't there? Because when people love someone, 
they communicate. And God loved us. And God wanted to communicate. And he wrote us a whole book of 66 different books, a whole library, uh, 1,100 and some chapters. And all of it has one theme ultimately, and at the bottom line, God said, I love you. This is not a math book. This is a love letter from home. This is interesting and stirs our hearts. If it were not for the love of God, you would not have the Bible. If it were not for the love of God, there would be no Christian faith. You wouldn't have your religion. If there were no love of God, Jesus would not have left heaven and come and have been born in a dirty, filthy old cattle stall. Were it not for the love of God, there'd be no plan of salvation today. You wouldn't be able to say, I've been saved by the blood of Christ Were it not for the love of God, there would be no grace. Grace is the child of God's love. Think about that. Grace is the child of God's love. His love gave birth to grace and to mercy and to heaven. If it were not for the love of God, we'd have no hope. We would die like a dog, be put in a hole, go back to the earth And that would be the end of our existence. But because God loved us, he gave us an ever-living, never-dying soul that will live somewhere throughout all of eternity. And it's because God made you as an eternal creature and he loves you. I hope that's beginning to warm the cockles of your heart if it's cold as you think about how much God has loved you. And I want to take this verse, and very simply, I want to dissect it. I want to look at just the words of the verse. They're simple words, monosyllabic words for the most part. The first one I want you to notice is God. For God so loved the world. Let's focus on that word God. Let me ask you a question. what What comes to your mind when I use the word God? Because big audience of people, lots of people watching on television, and thousands of different responses would be possible. What comes to your mind when I say God? For God so loved the world. Years ago in the city of Indianapolis, I think it was, maybe Detroit, one of our large northern cities, There was a preacher there. His name was Robert Moyer, an outstanding Baptist preacher. He said, I decided to go down to Chinatown, as we called it in those days, because he said, I thought I'd do a little foreign missionary work in the city that I lived in. And there was a whole enclave of Chinese people there. And so I went down there, and I was walking down the street looking for somebody. And there was a little Chinese man standing in the door of his business. He was the proprietor of it. Obviously, he had on a work apron. He said, I began to talk to him, but I could tell he really didn't know much at all. He didn't know much English at all. And he just kind of nod his head to everything and and smile a little bit. But he said, "I, I could tell I wasn't getting through. And so I began to talk to him. I said, do you know God? And he said, uh, he looked at me rather blankly. And I said again, do you know God? God, you know God. He pointed out. Finally, he said the little Chinese guy sort of smiled and, and turned and walked in. 
and went out of sight for a moment and came back and he said, I drifted into the building and there was a little, there was a little counter there with a cash register on it. And he said, the little man came out and he had this ugly, squatty little image made out of porcelain. It was, one of the, it was grotesque. It was one of the ugliest things I'd ever seen. And a little, little image like this. And the little Chinese man sat it upon the counter and he said, God. Now, what comes to your mind when I say God? Hopefully, certainly not. Certainly not a little ugly image of some kind. You know that God cannot be made with man's hands. How could we worship something that we created ourselves that would be less, lesser than we? It would be impossible, wouldn't it? But what comes to your mind when I say God? I hope it's the accurate image portrayed of him in the Bible. A.W. Tozer, the great author, said in his wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy, an Analysis of the Character of God, I quote, what comes to one's mind when we think about God and how we conceive him, listen, is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God, our conception of him, that word God, that's the most important thing about us, not our vocation, our education, our status in life. The most important thing about me is what I think about when I think about God. And you say, is that really true? I questioned it at first. Why would a man say that? But then as I contemplated it, I said, I believe he's right. Because you see, there is a law of the soul, a law. It inevitably happens in the spiritual realm, the law of the soul. And that is that we tend to become like whatever we conceive God to be. The idea of the ultimate being, God, shapes our thinking and it shapes our behavior in ways that we're not aware of, but the soul always moves toward and becomes like the God that we worship. In fact, here's the law stated. You may want to write it down your Bible. I wrote it in one of mine many years ago when I first heard it stated. And the law was this. It's a spiritual law. People become like the God they worship. People become like the God they worship. And so I, go, I watch my news on television, and I see over there that ISIS troops, radical Islamists, have cut the heads off of 100 Christians over there somewhere in the Middle East. Why do they do that? Because people become like the God they worship. The God they worship is a God of blood, a God of hatred, a God of vengeance, a God who has no mercy and no love. People become like the God they worship. If your concept of God is he's a permissive fellow that kind of lets you by with everything and he's one-dimensional and the only thing about God is that he's a God of love, you're going to live a very loose life. You're going to actually think you can get away with it because your concept of God affects your behavior. If, on the other hand, the God that you conceive is a God of hatred and legalism and bigotry and meanness... You're going to walk around in fear of him. You're not going to want to fellowship with him. You're not going to have any real heart for him. But if you'll step back and take your Bible and listen when Bill Monroe preaches to you and write some things down 
and gradually you let your thinking become shaped by the Word of God and your concept of God moves to the God who is the God of the Bible, I'll tell you, it will determine the way you will live your life if you truly believe that. People become like the God they worship. The God of the Bible, what is He like? He's infinite. There's no limit to Him. There's no limit to His knowledge. He's omniscient. There's no limit to His power. He can do anything. He flung the world out into existence in seven days. There's no limit to anything about Him. He's an infinite God. There's no, there's no limit to His holiness. He's always holy. There's no limit to his love, as I'm emphasizing right now. He's a personal being. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's not the force of Star Wars. He thinks. He has a mind. He re- he's reasonable. He feels. He has emotions. He loves. He also acts. He has will. He has volition. And so he acts into history. He created the world, and he's worked down through history with his actions and his works. He's a spirit being. You can't touch him because he's a spirit being who is everywhere omnipresent, we say, everywhere all the time. And he's the creator God who existed eternally, There never was a time when he didn't exist. There never will be a time when he won't exist. He does not diminish in his power with age. He's always the same. He's immutable, we say, meaning there's no change in him. He never mutates. He is always who he is. And one of his primary attributes is that he is a God of love, a God of love. It is his nature to love. He doesn't love you because you're a good person and not love someone else because they're not a good person. The man said to his little girl, you behave so God will love you. Oh, that's a crime. Don't ever say that to a child. Because God loves bad people just as much as he loves good people. Would you agree with that? If you don't, you'll get real self-righteous. No, God loves everyone. It is his nature. He doesn't love us because we deserve to be loved. He loves us because it's his nature. And he always acts first. He always takes the initiative. He doesn't respond to our love to him. In fact, the Bible says in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. We respond to him, not he to us. God. What comes to your mind when I say that word, that symbol, sound? God. Let your thinking be shaped by the Word of God. That's the only accurate way we have of knowing God. So loved is the next phrase I dissect. God so loved. He didn't just love. He so loved. Some theologians said that's the biggest word in the English language if you take it in its context in John three sixteen. God so loved. Boy, that's a big word now, isn't it? Not a two-letter word, but he so loved us. Think of that. You probably don't know the name of Frederick Lehman. You just are familiar with his work. The year was 1912. Lehman was a wealthy businessman in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. 
He was not only a wealthy businessman, he was an outstanding Christian. He served the Lord in his church. And they had a panic in the markets back in those days. And one day, Frederick Lehman, the wealthy businessman, found he had lost it all. He was pretty well penniless. He took a job as a 50-some-year-old man working in a lemon packing plant in the lemon groves outside of Pasadena, California, a day laborer, this wealthy man. He was very faithful, though, to the Lord and to his church, and he continued to attend. And one Sunday night, his, his pastor preached on the same subject I am, John three sixteen, how God so loved the world, and he emphasized that word so. And Layman was a, also played the piano, and he liked to write and packing lemons the next day or two. He kept thinking about how much God loved the people of the world and him. And he began to scrawl on a piece of paper some words that were coming to his mind. And he wrote those words down. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless, how strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and the angels' song. And he continued to write. And he wrote a couple of verses, went home, got it on the piano, put music with it, and was continually working on his, on his little song there. And then one day, a few days later, he said it was, seemed like it was providential. He said, I found a little card with words written on it. And he said, I looked at the bottom of the card and it told the story of the words. It says, these words were written 200 years ago in the 1700s in England. They were found on the wall of a mental asylum where the old man who had been in the asylum for years and years had died. And they came to take his body out and they came to get his stuff and renovate and paint the room and get it ready for the next occupant. And he said, scrawled on the wall behind the man's bed in pencil were these words. And we sung them a while ago, but think about them now in that context. Written by a man in a mental ward in England 200 years ago. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies above us of parchment made? And were every stalk and weed and stick on this earth a quill? And every man a scribe, a writer by trade. To write the love of God on that parchment sky would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. Those stretched from sky to sky. Man, what a description. What a description. And I don't know how, why that man needed to be in that mental hospital. Wow, I wish I could have said it like that. And yet that fails to describe fully the love of God, ladies and gentlemen. Because that word so loved surpasses all comparisons that we could think of. As I studied over the last couple of weeks on this series, I thought, what can I say that would 
adequately compare the love of God to something, and words fail me. I thought about the mother who runs into the burning house because the house caught on fire as she was out in the yard somewhere, and she runs in at risk of her life of being burned up and perhaps is horribly scarred and disfigured the rest of her life from fire, but she rescued that little baby, and she risked her life and gave up her health for it the love of a mother for her baby, or the love of a father who works three jobs and gives up all his freedom and and, and doesn't have much of a life so he can take care of his family and his children. Oh, what love some fathers have demonstrated. I think of the love of a soldier for his comrades, his buddies. And there they are in combat somewhere, and the enemy tosses a live grenade down uh, down into the foxhole. And one of those men, almost without thinking instinctually, he throws himself down upon that hand grenade and his body takes the force and his body is shredded and he's blown to bits and into eternity. But he does it because of loyalty and love for his friends around him and he saves their life. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Or the fireman on 9-11 who ran up the steps of 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 the World Trade Center And they had gotten the call. They knew what it was to have an inferno with tens of thousands of gallons of jet fuel raining down through the floors. They knew what the odds were. They knew they were going into almost certain death, carrying an oxygen tank on their back that would blow them to hell if, in fact, it blew up in the fire itself. And yet they went went anyhow, hundreds of them. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's love. It's still not as great as the love of God, though. So loved the world. How great is the love of God? Let me show you the basis that the Bible always uses to compare it. Turn to the book of Romans, please. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there, yesterday I had a wedding. It was a small wedding. And uh, Eddie and Cindy stood before me, and uh, oh, how they loved each other. I could tell. And as I said the vows, Eddie's a big old guy. He's a motorcycle rider of all things. We had half of the motorcycle contingent in town here. All these guys walking in with leather and all that stuff, you know. And you know what? Old big tough Eddie, the motorcycle guy, he looks at his, his bride I take the, <laughs> and he started blubbering, and it took me a while to get him through the vows. And I said, now, Cindy, it's your time, and she starts. They loved each other so much. How beautiful. The love of a mother for her child, the love of a father for his child, the love of a soldier for his comrades, the love of the firemen who don't even know the people but give their life. The love of a bride and a groom. But God doesn't use any of those to compare it. That won't reach to so loved. What does he use? Chapter 5 and verse 8. God commendeth in our King James Bible, demonstrated his love, proved his love to us. God proved, commendeth, demonstrated his love to us. How? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
The basis of measurement for the love of God is not the love of the mother or the father, the soldier, the fireman, the bride. The basis God measures his love by is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know how much God loves you? Look right up there. Be reminded every time you walk in the door. How much does God love you? So much that he stretched out his arms and he died. God, the Holy Father, looked down and saw those executioners strip his son naked, lay him down on a timber and stretch out his arms take a big hammer and drive a spike down in as the flesh of his hand quivered as he cried out in pain. And then the other hand, and then he drove that rusty spike through his feet into that cross. This is after they'd taken a cat of nine tails and practically stripped the flesh, the meat from his bones. And now he's laid and nailed to that plank And they raise it up with those ropes, as you've seen, perhaps depicted in the movies. They drop it in a three or four foot hole, and every bone is unsocketed. And he quivers, and he cries out in pain, oh, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? How am I going to do this, God, even Jesus? Thomas Paine was the famous atheist, the revolutionary warrior. He wrote that little tract, Common Sense. Some of it is real good. It's about why the colonies revolted against the king of England. Some of it's horrible. Thomas Paine had grown up in a Christian home, and he came to hate God. He died unrepentant, as far as we know. And Paine wrote in his little treatise there, he said he thought it was unjust for God to take the sins of all humanity as the Christians claimed. He said the Christians claimed that God took all the sins of humanity from the first man to the last and placed them upon Jesus Christ and then punished him. And he blamed God. He said that's unfair. God's unjust. He should not have done that. That's not right for God to take the sins of all of humanity and put them on a third person. Well, Thomas Paine missed one big thing, and you'll find it, and I want you to turn and read it with me. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And why God was not unjust when he put the sins of the world and humanity and your sin and my sin upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. To wit or to witness... God was in Christ. And so when God, when the sins of the world were placed upon Christ, don't forget this is not God punishing Christ as a third person. This is Almighty God who is in Christ. And notice what he says. He reconciled or brought together the sinful world and himself, not imputing or crediting trespasses and sins unto the sinners, but he hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Oh, what a wonderful verse. 
how that God in Christ paid himself for our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't take for granted the love of God if you believe that verse. God himself paid the price. Charles Wesley wrote it in his great hymn, that thou, my God, should die for me. Christ was not just a man. He was God incarnate in human flesh, paying the price for the sins of his own creatures. That's the measurement of God's love. And to preach the love of God, as even many liberals will do, but they'll never mention the cross, misses the whole point. People's hearts are not moved because God loves them in some sort of impersonal way. My heart is stirred when I find out that God became a man, took upon himself all the sins of the world, went to the cross and was punished for my sin. Now, okay, that moves my heart. That gets my loyalty. I owe him more than I owe anybody because my eternal destiny is at stake on that. God so loved the world, the world, the world of humanity, not the world of the mountains and the sea and the trees and all of his creation. That's not talking about that. It's talking about the world of people. He loves all the nations. He loves the Jews. He loved them first, maybe. But he loves the Chinese just as much. He loves the Africans just as much. God loves the Indians. God loves the Arabs. God loves the Americans. God loves the Europeans, the South Americans. Have I got everybody? He loves the Eskimos. I'm trying to get everybody in. He loves the penguins in Antarctica. I think I left that continent out. God loves us. God loves the races. The kids learn to sing red and yellow, black and white. What? All are precious. Boy, that eliminates all racial prejudice. Black lives matter, and white lives matter, and red lives matter, and yellow lives matter. We ought to cut out some of this stuff that's going on in the country today. Get our eyes upon the right things. God loves the civilized, but he loves the barbarian. I may not. I meet the barbarians at Cole's Crossroads in the traffic. (laughs) But God even loves them. He loves the educated and the doctors and the PhDs and the professors and whatever, but he loves the illiterate just as much. You don't have to feel bad if you didn't get a chance to graduate from college because God loves you just as much as he does the guy with the PhD. He loves the poor man just as much as he loves the rich man. He loves the conservative He even loves liberals. God loves them all. He loves the preacher and the prostitute. Two ends of the spectrum, hopefully. The doctor and the drug addict. 
the lawyer and the bricklayer. He loves us. Have I gotten everybody in under the circle now? I hope I have. Because it should include you, all those categories. About 18, 20 years ago, I went to Russia and I preached there. Boy, it was a cold night. I'll never forget it. I had everything on I could get on. That was still cold. Snow blowing. And the service was in a movie theater. And I'm going to say there was, oh, four, five, six hundred people there. And I thought, what shall I preach on? I've been thinking about it on the flight over and two or three days sitting around the hotel. And what am I going to preach on, man? I got to preach through an interpreter. I don't like to do that. It start with. It's very hard. And I haven't even met the interpreter yet. And they tell me she's a 20-year-old girl. And uh, so I've got to be careful not use any theological terms. What am I going to preach on? I prayed and I prayed and I thought, I didn't even use any of the outlines that I'd taken. Open my Bible to John 3.16, that cold night in Russia. And I began to tell the people that God loved me. And after the service, and I'd preached, the missionary said to me, the little girl, Genia, that interpreted for you, let me tell you about her. She grew up, <clears throat> she lost her parents. She was a waif, but a very attractive, beautiful little girl physically. She became a prostitute when she was about 15. And a couple, three years ago, when she was about 19, she got saved. And tonight, the, that night, I thought, the preacher from South Carolina opens up his Bible, preaches from John 3, 16, and a little 20, 21-year-old girl who's been a prostitute for three or four years is his interpreter and mouthpiece to the Russian people. And who did God love the most? Both of us. Because his love is infinite. Well, how are you going to respond to what I preach today? What are you going to do with it? Junior Hill said to me, people don't come anymore like they used to come when we preach. And we sat and talked for a while about why we thought that was true. Jerry Vines told me the same thing a couple weeks ago. And both of them and myself, drew the, we all drew the same conclusion. People don't think they're really lost in America anymore. They used to think they were lost. They don't really believe they need it. They have so much. And why in the world would anybody want to go to heaven when you got it as good as some of us do? And we don't think we really need, we don't see ourselves as desperate and perishing and without God and without hope. That's illusionary. That's, that's idealistic. That's not real, is it, preacher? And yet we can look at the paper, put our Bible in one hand, the paper in the other, and boy, we can see how wicked this world is. But I'm a good person. I don't kill, rape, steal, murder, do all that stuff that I read about in the paper. I'm a good person. And it's as if we don't really believe that all of us have sinned and fallen desperately short of the mark of God. 
and we don't feel our need until the Holy Spirit convicts you and convinces you that you're lost and you're in desperate straits. It's just a matter of time till you perish. Even this verse, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There it is, that's hell. That's dying without Christ and going into eternity without hope. In the, in the most positive verse in the Bible, it's there. And until we really get a hold of our, that we're perishing, the love of God means very little. It doesn't stir my heart. It's theoretical until I see, hey, I don't have any hope without this. I'm a goner. And when we see ourselves as God sees us, dead in trespasses and sins, perishing without any way to save ourselves, then the love of God is the only thing that really matters. James Denny, Scottish famous theologian, wrote in his book, The Death of Christ, these words, I hope you'll concentrate. I wrote them so you could see them and think about them with me and not just let it be a blur. Then he said, if I were sitting on the end of a pier on a, Sunday, a summer afternoon enjoying the sunshine and air, and someone came running down the pier and jumped into the water and drowned to prove his love to me, I would find them foolish. But he said, I might be much in need of love, but the act of that person had no relationship to my need. But if I'd fallen over the pier and was drowning, and that person came and jumped in and rescued me, James Denny said, I would be eternally grateful. Because there would be an understandable relationship between my great need of drowning in the water and the actions of that person. If you're here today and you're not saved, and I didn't say, are you a church member? Are you a good moral person? I said, are you saved? If, you, if the love of God hasn't moved you, it's because probably you don't see that you're perishing. You don't have any hope without this. This is why in the eyes of God, the greatest sin that anybody ever commits is not the bad sins that we have on our little short list. The greatest sin anybody can commit is to refuse his offer of grace. To say, you sent, I, God said, I sent my son and he did this for you and it means nothing to you. Away with you. The greatest sin is not the things we think about is to reject the grace of God the offer that he extends to us. He's done everything for us that needs to be done to bring us to reconciliation with him. And then some of you are saved and the, word, and the love of God hasn't maybe been what it ought to be to you. <clears throat> Boy, I found this illustration. This is a magazine that I get every month. And here's the picture of a little boy on here. Let me tell you the story of Danjuma Shikara of Nigeria. This little boy is 13 years old. He lives in Nigeria where there's that conflict between 
half Christian, half Muslim. At 6 a.m. on January the 28th this year, over a thousand Boko Haram Islamic terrorists attacked his village, burning all the houses that they could, killing and raping. After a couple hours, they left, 28 dead, 38 injured. Everybody had vacated and run from the village in terror and it was going up in flames or in smoke by that time. 38 people injured, 28 dead. <clears throat> Dan Juma, the little boy here, he tried to escape, and he ran straight into one of the soldiers of Boko Haram. I quote from the story, all he remembers is the machete slicing through the left side of his head. He doesn't remember because he had fallen unconscious that the machete hacked away at his left arm, leaving it dangling. They cut out his left eye. It's gone. They cut off his genitals and left him unconscious and bleeding in a ditch. The villagers came back to the village after a few hours, and they saw him. They actually began digging his grave. They thought he was dead. And then they heard him whimper and the little boy crying. But he survived. Today he's horribly disfigured, as you can see. His eye sewn shut. Horrible scarring across his head where that machete cut him. He has limited use of his arm. One eye is missing. A catheter extends from the lower part of his abdomen, draining urine into a bag that he has to carry when he walks. He said these words in the article here. In spite of my suffering, God is in control. I forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Only the love of God could make a person. That little boy is 13, but boy, he's infinite in wisdom as a Christian. The love of God. How will you respond to God's love? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.